and we're recording. Yeah, it's like an ASMR video, except it's an audio, and there's no ASMR. Wait, I just found, uh, I just heard about ASMR. Well, remind me what it is again. What is it? Uh, it's uh, uh, it's like people fuck around with a mic, like real close and talk into it real soft and make noises and shit. It's supposed to help you fall asleep. The idea is it's supposed to, you know, when you're like, you know, you get like, uh, you know, it happens to me when someone's explaining something that I don't care about, but I find their voice soothing. And my brain just starts to tingle a little bit. Yeah. That ASMR is designed to try and make your brain do that. I've never found it to work for me. Uh, so, but like, it's the kind of thing that on, you know, like, if you're on YouTube and you want to talk about a subject, but not try that hard, you just buy a high quality mic and you just like, you just talk like real soft into it. And like, you get like a shitload of fucking views. Oh, we're doing the wrong thing. Yeah, I know. We should just do this podcast for... I wouldn't be able to talk soft enough with the problem. That's yeah, that's true. All right. So, we are going to start today's episode with the Brothers Hughes. I'm Zach D'Antonio. And I'm Nick DeRiso. And this is a career in film. Oh, yeah. We'll have to use that clip of us saying it. Twice. Yeah. It's the name of the podcast. Each week, we take a director that has one movie that we really love, and then we do a deep dive on their filmography because we're insane and like watching tons of movies. And this week, the Hughes brothers. The Hughes brothers. So the reason we chose them is uh, kind of two movies. The the main one being Menace to Society. Well, Menace to Society is the classic. If you know we're picking something based, you know, a, a filmmaker based around uh, a movie that we really like that we haven't heard a lot about the filmmaker afterwards necessarily. And Hughes brothers. Uh, yeah, you're right. It is sort of ultimately a two-parter um, because of between A Mess Society and then Dead Presidents, their follow-up movie, mm-hmm. um, which is, I would say, a bit more culty. There, It does have its following, though. Um, and so, yeah, we'll do some compare and contrast uh, when we get there. But, yeah, we picked it for... We picked Hughes Brothers specifically for Mess Society. Which is a great movie. We'll yeah. talk about that in a second. Let's get back in the time machine and go way, way back. Um, so, the Hughes Brothers were born in Detroit, Michigan, April 1st, 1972. Um, so it is Albert and Alan Hughes. Albert is the older twin by nine minutes. Uh, their parents, Albert and Aida, they divorced when they were two. They moved with their mom to Pomona, California when they were nine years old. Um, so the whole story that they tell that I was able to find is basically their mom gave them their first video camera when they were 12 years old. It was a way to keep them out of gangs and out of trouble, um, because she basically instructed them to make movies. And in high school, they continued to do that, and they would get special assignments, um, and that kind of birthed their career. Uh, after high school, uh, a lot of conflicting information I found on the internet, so I don't want to say any of it. Well, that's the fucking internet for you. That's wrong. <laughs> um, but basically, they went on and they got their start in directing by doing music videos. They got hooked up with Digital Underground while they were working for Hollywood Records, which is how they met Tupac, who was a huge figure in their career in getting them started, actually. Yeah, I'd imagine. Um, but they recorded music videos. Uh, the stat I found was 30 music videos over their first nine months there. Artists like Tupac, Tone Loke, um, they most notably did Tupac's first video. And while they were working on music videos, basically a producer came to them and was like, so is what are you guys trying to do? Like, you've got an interesting style. Are you guys trying to be commercial filmmakers? Are you trying to just do music videos? And they were like, no, 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 we want to make movies. Um, because they were hugely inspired by the Spielbergs, the Scorseses of the time, growing up in, you know, the 80s and the early 90s. Um, so their first film is the mainstay, the one that we're talking about, is Menace to Society. 
it is co-written by them and Tiger Williams, who was one of their friends. And according to Tiger Williams, they were basically tired of seeing movies about kids who got out of the ghetto, uh, famously saying, for every 20% that do, 80% don't. And they wanted to tell the story of the kids that didn't. So they tried to get backing from a bunch of major studios, a lot of them wanting a ton of control over the movie. Uh, oddly enough, a lot of them wanting the film to end and culminate in the L.A. riots. Right, which, but, I mean, sounds like what, uh, you know, an old, an old white studio head would want from yeah. this, you know, these budding young black filmmakers. That sounds right. We're both white, by the way. Uh, <laughs> In case you couldn't tell, pushes glasses up nose. Um, but yeah, they didn't want to do that. Uh, they want to tell the small slice of life story. So they ended up raising $3.5 million with the condition from New Line, who picked them up, that a platinum-selling rap artist be cast in the film. Um, there were tons of rap artists that were attached to the project and eventually dropped out, and a couple smaller ones, in hindsight, that are still in it. Yeah. Um, but the big one was um, Tupac Shakur was originally cast as Sharif. What? Tupac Shakur. Did I say Shakur? Yeah. Yeah, damn it. <laughs> I'm like Ron Burgundy. I read what I write. Uh, yeah, but Tupac was in it. Um, who He fought with the directors a ton, particularly over the character motivation of Sharif. Tupac was a classically trained dancer and actor, which is what everyone fucking forgets. So he went super into the character, and he wasn't into the motivations and how they related to the plot, particularly about... Um, the gangster that he was playing converting to Islam. Uh, they ended up getting in a fight. Um, it, I believe there were also like some lawsuits between Alan Hughes or one of the Hughes brothers and Tupac. But it, it led to him not being in the movie. That makes sense. And if you look at like you know Tupac's career around that time, you know that where he was doing uh, like this is around the same time as Juice and uh, you know it, but he ultimately I guess later in his career started getting a little bit more meaty roles but Tupac you could tell early on in his acting career I'm actually very well versed in Tupac's acting career because um, he was he was a fantastic actor he really didn't grow into a, a, a truly phenomenal actor towards, towards the end of his life like I guess probably you know, about, you know five or so years after this um, but when it, you know with with Juice in particular um, you know he had uh, you, you could tell that he did a lot of homework and he was kind of his ability was above what that script gave him yeah him working with rookie filmmakers as a, a as not only a classically trained actor but also like a, an increasingly huge deal in the music industry I get where he would probably have clashes yeah um, so let's talk about the movie um, so the plot basically revolves around two kids Kane and O-Dog um, movie starts with them getting an an altercation with a bodega owner. For those of you who don't know what a bodega is, it is a corner store. Yeah, in a no, major it's a corner city. store with a deli in it. It's yeah. a New York thing. Um, but basically, he kills the Korean owner and his wife, but he keeps the security tape to show to people around his neighborhood. Um, then later, the two are also involved in a drive-by shooting. They retaliate against the people that tried to shoot them. Uh, and eventually, Kane, our main character, he gets an out of this life. A second chance comes back along to move to Atlanta with a girl. And that's kind of the bare bones that I want to give you is this guy trying, he, the movie is him already in this life trying to get pulled out of it by other people and him taking or not taking those chances. And I don't want to spoil the ending, but that's basically the plot of the movie. It's rather simple. I guess. This one I don't because it's really fucking good. And honestly, 
we can kind of talk about it. Um, I feel like I, I think some, it's, I feel like if someone's listening to this podcast, they've seen the ending of. You know, I don't want to spoil the ending. I say you go watch it. It's incredibly impactful to me, the ending of that movie. Um, comparing it to Boys in the Hood is something that happens all the time, and for me, this is the superior film. And a large part of that is also because of the way that Boys in the Hood ends is similar to the way that this ends. Yeah. But this, to me, is much more affecting and real. Yeah. I mean, I, I can definitely get behind that for sure. Um no, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, you're always going to compare this to this to Boys in the Hood, and uh, I've always been more of a Boys in the Hood fan, though I can admit that I saw Boys in the Hood first, uh, which I think is a factor, and I do think that, that, you know, there are very distinct differences between the two movies, and this one in particular is a bit more gritty and dark and real. Uh, I think Boys in the Hood, generally speaking, has better performances, um, and uh, I think it's a bit more clean cut with the ending. Like it, I it's feel, a polished I feel, film. I feel stronger closure within that movie, but also, like, this movie's still just really good, too. So, you know, it's not, yeah. Well, agree to disagree. Um, but yeah, the realism of this movie is one of the things that really made it go above and beyond. Um, and part of that is Kane, who's the lead, was basically an unknown at the time of this casting. His name's Tyron Taylor, and he basically hasn't done anything else. He's a guy that like just came in on a casting call, and they fell in love with him, and they worked with him. And even at the beginning, they say like it was really rough. We really weren't sure when we started filming this. But the guy just worked his tail off and worked with the directors a lot. Yeah. And then you add in the, the bigger names that are involved, too, where you've got, like, Sam Jackson, Bill Duke, Charles S. Dutton, like, kind of the, you know, th these are all very big names of black cinema around the time. Yeah. And um, I, so I watched the mini documentary behind Menace Society about the making of. Okay. And they said particularly those three guys kind of acted like godfathers on set. I mean, they sense. lent a ton of authenticity um, but also kind of helped, I think, keep the studio backed off of them a little bit because they were getting such prolific African-American actors. Yeah, I mean, that. yeah, that makes sense. And the other person I want to mention is Lorenz Tate because he will come up again. So he was like a Disney Channel kid around the time of this casting. He talks about like he had a very clean cut look and he was kind of a teeny bopper. Um, I don't think he's that good of an actor. However, I think it works really well for this because O-Dog is basically a guy who is posturing all the time. So I don't necessarily see a bad actor in this situation. I see a guy who's pretending his entire life. And that's why I think this performance works so well for it me. It makes sense. I, I find Lorenz Tate to be generally serviceable. Like, I don't... I've never... I don't look at Lorenz Tate as an actor and go, this is... You know, I don't believe this performance of this person. I'm just, you know, Lorenz Tate never steals a scene for me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, I think he's fine. So, the film came up, it was um, played at Cannes in 1993, and that's where Alan Hughes gave the very controversial and famous quote, if you hate blacks, this movie will make you hate them more. Uh, these two were kind of, with this movie, a PR machine. They created so much buzz and controversy around this movie that led the movie to make more money. Um, Oprah also denounced the film, and the brothers flipped it and basically was like, Oprah says that this is bad. you got to check how bad this is. Yeah. And 
Yeah, the movie. Which they're also at the time these are these are what 20, 22 year old, twenty one. Yeah, the, like these they're are so kids. they're so young, and they're going to you know the fucking Cannes Film Festival. Like, yeah, and they <laughs> flipped this into it was a three and a half million dollar budget, flipped it to a twenty eight million dollar gross. Um, in what was you know a small release for the time mm-hmm. for a little indie movie from no name directors. Um, and this is where they started their trend where Alan Hughes is the person that works with the actors and Albert is behind the camera doing all the technical work. And they would continue this on for most of both of their careers. Then the, I guess the, the companion piece to the, the discussion. Oh, just I real guess, quick, or... overall thoughts. Like, uh, on, uh, this on... movie is like a, a strong four for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I give it a, I give it a, a, a strong three, light four, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Like, it's, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, we haven't really talked about the the scale on here. Uh, so. We'll do that eventually. They can figure it out. Yeah, it's but it's one to five scale. Yeah, um, I'm. I saw this movie first. I was really taken with it. Uh, some of its imagery has stuck with me since. I think this was the first year that we ever did our personal list with each other, and this was on there, and it's yeah. kind of remained a movie in my mind. Which is funny because I put that on originally because Pat Lindbergh told me it was good. Yeah, and that was I was like oh. Well, we have 30 picks on the personal list. Why not? Might as well throw on a wreck from someone else. No, but yeah, so I'm going to talk about Dead Presidents. Um, yeah, companion piece. Yeah, so uh, Dead Presidents was, came out in 1995, two years later. Um, written by Michael Henry Brown. It was the only thing he ever really wrote. Um, but it, it is the story of the, the Bronx pre-Vietnam uh, told through the eyes of Anthony. And then he this character named Anthony. Uh, he goes off to war... Uh, with his two drafted friends, sees the horrors of war. Um, he comes back home, and and it, it, life is hard, right? Now, you know, basically the idea is it's a, it begins as kids living in their home neighborhood, very similarly to Menace to Society, except it's more of a period piece. Yeah, um, sixties. Yeah, I mean, it's Vietnam. So yeah, um, and then uh, and then they get uh, they they go to war, go into Vietnam. Then for a bit it is a war movie, showing some very gruesome things happening there, and then it's the life afterwards. Think of this movie as sort of uh, the the deer hunter, but uh, in a, a black community. Um, oh, okay. I, I never pulled that together. Yeah, good, good pull. Yeah, but that like to me that's what Dead Presidents is. Um, and I think that's ultimately the strengths of Dead Presidents. So I guess we'll get into that. Uh, it's notable for uh, there's a. a a predominant part of the third act involves a, rom- a robbery where all they're all uh, wearing uh, uh, white face. Uh, they're all dressed as mimes, sort of. Um, uh, and, uh, you know... We'll get into this. I have questions. Sure. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if you're getting into the, the individual... Uh, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause. I mean, we keep, we'll keep recording, obviously, but... No, 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 organize yourself. Um, Because I I, I do have a couple questions for you. We both watched this, and I want to break down the the, the characters a little bit more because I do think it's a very character driven piece. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So um, I can start off while you're doing that. Lorenz Tate is back as Anthony, though everyone calls him Youngblood. Yeah, that's kind of his nickname around. So like, there's because it's him and Keith David, and that's a a major a plot point on the early goings. I guess throughout the entire movie. Yeah, but. You know, there's a because he a, writes to him. He's like the guy yeah. he writes to. So it's like uh, Keith David plays uh, Lorenz Tate, uh, Anthony Youngblood. Um, he, he's he's this streetwise kid who's starting to get involved in crime a little bit. 
Um, you know, and uh, he's like doing he's, small hustles, running numbers. Right, and there's a there's a scene where he plays Terrence Howard in pool, and then Terrence then he beats Terrence Howard in pool, and Terrence Howard pulls a knife on him, and then you know Keith Keith David comes and beats the shit out of him. Um, you know, his best friend is played by Chris Tucker. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, he's got a, another good childhood friend, Freddie Rod- played by Freddie Rodriguez, who doesn't come back till really the third act of the movie. But yeah, and then uh, so in the first portion of the movie, when they're when they're kind of young, some really interesting things that go on. I think there's a wonderful, it's a it's a really interesting, real sex scene uh, of him losing his yeah. virginity, and I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, it's really um, good. It's a it's a really well done kind of shows that that the awkwardness of of someone losing their virginity. It's incredibly relatable, and it's it's uncomfortable, but like at the same time, it's still kind of wholesome well the way it's shot it's got this great energy to it especially the party scene right before it it really kind of puts you back in that mind space it's one of those where it's so specific it becomes universal yeah um it's just yeah it's really well done yeah and then uh you know so and then you know you get to the the war stuff and there's some you know there's so Bokeem Woodbine's in this, and I I love Bokeem Woodbine. Uh, he uh, plays the priest. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, he, he, I I had I, some questions about his character arc. Sure, uh, I'm I'm a little confused. Yeah, talk to me. Um, so he starts out when we're in Vietnam. We meet him, and I forget who the other gen- general captain. Basically, he's like one of two guys who leads a platoon in Vietnam, yeah. and they're supposed to be a more special platoon that takes more risky and dangerous missions. Sure. And he is portrayed in the first part of this movie in Vietnam as a guy who was a priest, but yet he's got this insane bloodlust. Um, particularly, yes. he cuts off um, a dead soldier's head and carries it around in his backpack has a good luck charm. Um, and the Horrors of War section, I think, is fantastic. Everything yeah. in Vietnam, it's some of the best Vietnam portrayed in a film. What, what am I trying to say? No, it's one of the best portrayals of Vietnam in a film. I think you said it fine. It's right? one of the it's best not, portrayals. Not, yeah, you just, you just changed the words around a little bit, but you're all right. Yeah, God, it's, it's, it's been a long day. <laughs> it's fine. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that stuff is really good. And um, there's also the very... Is it a... You see one of his friends in the platoon die, and there's a dick in his mouth? Is that what they do? Is they cut off his dick and put it in his mouth? I could not... Like, yeah, it's, it's so a, brief, you don't quite know. There's only so long you can chill a dick, you know? It's, uh... It, but, but, but so you're getting these really gross horrors of war, and this guy is basically the physical embodiment of it on this American platoon. He is the one that has totally gone over to the dark side and is carrying around a human head. Well, yeah. A de- decomposing human head. So if you're going to that character specific arc and it's a little it's a little, you know it's a little tricky to do that uh, you know without talking about uh, you know the, We can the just leave it there and come film. back to him. Yeah, yeah, I, I prefer to do that. I think that would be better. But I but think so he's the, good in that section. So, and that so, makes sense. So then they all they, they all get back and then you've got uh, you know and then it, it goes into where the characters went. And yet again I find this to be very strong where you've got um, you know uh, I was almost almost called him O Dog, but that's not his name. That's the that would have been his name. it's Lawrence Tate. It's Youngblood. Young Blood. So Young Blood's dealing with uh, so definitely some post traumatic stress disorder, uh, and it's negatively affecting his uh, relationship, his marriage, and he's got a I believe he's got a kid. Right? Um, and so you know he's having issues with that. Also alcoholism. He's drinking a lot more. That's explored. Uh, you got Chris Tucker, and there the scene where uh, Young Blood first gets back. Chris Tucker's sitting there. 
and Chris Tucker is drugged out of his mind on heroin, doesn't even recognize him at first. And he, so he gets out, and it's, this is a guy he not only grew up with, but went to war with. And he comes Because they back. are in the same platoon. Yeah, so like they've been together their entire lives. Oh. And he goes and gets out of the car, and then you've got Chris Tucker sitting there, and it takes him a few minutes to register who he's talking to, because he's, so he's so high out of his fucking mind. I, like Stuff like that in this movie, to me, is some of the most powerful work that these brothers have ever done. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing with uh, Chris Tucker's character is also um, he has, uh, it's Agent Orange. He was exposed to Agent Orange in Vietnam. Okay, that was not very clear to me, and I was very confused. I wrote down on my paper, are they implying he has AIDS? No. Because they was, say a bunch of us are coming back with it. Yeah, no, that, it was definitely Agent Orange. Um, I think that's more of a, a just knowledge of the Vietnam War uh, gap than anything else. Like, because I, mm. I was watching it, I, I mean, Kelly was my, my girlfriend Kelly was in the room while I was watching it and she and like she audibly just went oh shit he got Agent Orange like that that was like two seconds into Chris Tucker's scene that's what she said yeah I'm a dummy <laughs> I was like I, I don't know uh, what they're talking about but the but yeah. point of that is he has come back and his whole thing is he's just living off the government with the health benefits because of Agent Orange right. and He's not working. He's just a drug addict who is living off of welfare and his health pension. And then you got Freddy Rodriguez's character, who was not in their platoon. Correct. Uh, he was just in their open. But but the whole thing with him is they cut to, and he's a he's a fucking pyromaniac. He can't stop setting stuff on fire. Well, he's, like, a, he's just, he was a munitions expert. Right. Exactly. But mm -hmm. like, there's just scenes where like they're driving. He's just like starting a fire in his lap because like that, you know. And it, 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 so you're watching the fall of these characters as time goes by, mm -hmm. and all of that's incredibly strong. The final act of the movie involves uh, the robbery of an armored car. Mm -hmm. um, and if we're not doing spoilers, I want to avoid... We can do it with that. It's just menace to society where like, I, I feel like I went into that movie pure and not knowing anything about it. And the ending so got me, I didn't want to give it up. This one, I want to talk about the ending a lot. Okay. I have a lot of questions. Sure. Um, okay, so yeah. So... Uh, I will say the weakest element of this movie, ultimately, this is me not just giving a synopsis, but also my critiques. Yeah. Uh, the weakest element of this movie, ultimately, is the third act, because uh, it, while I do think it is a rather well-shot and conceived heist scene, it does not match the tone of the rest of the film for me. Like, it, at the same time, it's still... What you're watching is very... It's uh, him and his... Uh, so it's uh, Youngblood, and he teams up with... Uh, uh, Chris Tucker and uh, Fred Rodriguez um, and Bakim Woodbine who's the, the, the priest who stole the head uh, and then also his wife's sister who's a revolutionary uh, yeah she's a revolutionary um, and uh, they decide to rob rob an armored car and they set up the oh uh, and uh, Keith David's involved as well yeah um, and so they, they have to rob this armored car there's some interesting stuff that goes on this is where it's like I feel like when I'm, you know I I don't want to get too caught up into just like explaining everything that fucking happens. But like no no no, but this is important because I I think up until then you're seeing a really interesting and captivating portrayal of what life was like for African Americans post Vietnam, where our soldiers were coming back and being mistreated, and in particular African American soldiers were not being treated well at all. For sure. So you've seen Lorenz Tate lose his job. You've seen one strung out on heroin. All of them have various forms of PTSD. Everyone is self-destructive. But then the movie kind of just switches gears and all of a sudden you're in a very well done, but completely separate from what the rest of the narrative and thematic 
through line was of this cool, intense, like almost Tony Scott shootout. Yeah, no, I mean, it felt, uh, to me, it felt very Michael Mann, but yeah. It's, it, that yeah. works, too. It's it's, it's yeah. great, but it has no place in this I movie. Like watching, I felt like I was watching the third act of Heat. <laughs> it, it's one of those things where it's like, I feel like Menace Society was a big enough hit that they got a little bit more money, a little bit less supervision, and they had this idea for a big finale and never were able to totally connect it. Yeah, I mean, like, I buy, I buy that, you know, desperate people will do desperate things, right? But it's the slickness of the action. Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, you would think that it would be less slick and more more issues would come up during the process. Yeah. Like, obviously, things go wrong with it, you know, you get characters that get killed off, that sort of thing. But, yeah, I mean, it is, it, it, at least in terms of the, the conception of it, it is uh, pretty well thought out but then again like no it's not because then like you know there's so many issues that take place that are due to poor planning so no like i, I don't know it, it sort of works for me too it's just i guess yeah it, because of how gritty the rest of it is it's a rare situation where i think that uh, the the hughes brothers the 24 year old hughes brothers were too good of filmmakers to do this scene <laughs> and that's that's kind of the issue that came up for me because i buy it from a character standpoint I don't think it's necessarily the strongest, like, it's not the strongest means to the end of what the movie's trying to do. Yes. But it still does what the movie's trying to do. I and would so, say, like, it just barely does what the movie's trying to do. Because, so after the fact, if we can kind of jump ahead for a second. So, shootout ends, a couple people are dead, um, and the police are onto them, someone spends too much money at once, gets caught, flips on all of them, and the last scene in the movie is basically a courtroom scene where... Martin Sheen yeah. is the judge. Uh, the real war vet, as he says, and hammers home because he fought in World War II, not in Vietnam. Um, that was like a little, that was a nice little moment. But the whole thing is he was like, yeah, you're not a real veteran. Uh, we served our country. We know what it meant to sacrifice someone who would kill police officers and cause so much reckless damage is not a true patriot, even though that's kind of the defense that Lorenz Tate is putting up in his last, um, in his, what do they call that when you get to speak at the end of a courtroom? His closing statement? Yeah, sure. Um, whatever. But, so I think the movie is trying to hammer that point home of, well, desperate situations by my country that I fought for and bled for, and when I came home, my country let me down, so I had to do this. I don't think it's as justified because we've just watched him viciously murder police officers and his friends have gotten killed in really stupid ways, but also everyone was acting like they're in a John Woo movie for a hot second. It, that's where the disconnect comes into me. I think they're incredibly good filmmakers. This is a section where I think the story kind of got away from them and they weren't able to rein it in enough to make it a satisfying full arc. And so, yeah, but that's where I will personally disagree just because I think that the, um, you know, I definitely didn't feel it as hammered home as much as you did, where I think mm -hmm. that, you know, it's, it, you've got this scene where uh, where Youngblood is is in the, the courtroom and he's, he's giving his closing statements and he's, he's giving the excuses. And they're excuses that the movie has taken the time to somewhat justify, but at the same time, you as the viewer are not ready to be like, well, you know, the, the, these other characters, did, you know, did, did, did America should forgive him for killing these people, which is the kind of disconnect. And Sheen, to me, puts it in perspective where he goes, he goes, listen, I was a war veteran. No, I want to be clear because I do, don't think your description was 
he's not saying that Vietnam was a lesser war than World War II. That's never stated. It's, no, I don't think it's implied. There's either. a small. I don't think it's implied. Yeah. I, I I don't. I th- I think it's straight up. He says I'm a war veteran too. You can't pull that card on me. That is the extent of it, as far because then he goes directly into we as you know we we in the military don't kill police officers. We don't rob armored cars. We came to serve our country, and that's what that's what we do. But you don't get any. Sympathy from me because you're a murderer, which he is. It's fair, <laughs> and, and that's where you, I, as an audience member at the end of the movie, am kind of torn because I'm. I watched the entirety of, um, you know, America fucking these people over. Yeah. While at the same time, now I'm like, yeah, but like, no, Martin Sheen's got a point. Like, he didn't kill anybody. Granted, you can make the argument that Martin Sheen probably wasn't as fucked over, but I don't know that. We don't know that. And that's the idea behind it is that it's it's sort of casting some uh, some doubt on that. Where yet, yet again, where you're, the Hughes brothers, when it comes to perspectives, do an excellent job there. I do. We're fine to disagree on this. I mean, the movie's still a three for me, but I don't think their intention was to muddle the sympathies of the lead character as much as what happened with the third act bank robbery and the subsequent courtroom scene. And that's where the movie kind of becomes a three and not a four for me. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, disagree. For me, I think this is a uh, far superior film to Menace of Society. Um, right. I think I think it is a I, I think it is and they took what was in Menace of Society and they made it uh, they made it apply to a lot more people and walks of life. And I think the film is. Uh, a bit more relatable to the average person. Yeah. I would encourage people to watch both. I mean, for sure, they're both they're both good movies. Yeah. So no disagreement there. But yeah, so that's that one. Um. So next up in 1999, they actually made a documentary. Um. It's called American Pimp. Um. One of the reasons I want to bring this up is because if you go back to when they were 12 years old and first given their camera, in school they had assignments where they would have to like, uh, instead of writing an essay on how to do something, how to blank, how to open a checking account, or how to balance a checkbook. They were given, teachers knew they were filmmakers, they were like, here, you have your blank how to something, make me a how to video. And they were like, oh, the teacher's gonna give us a blank assignment. So they did like, how to rob a bank, how to sell crack cocaine on the street, things like that. So um, having not watched this, it seems like this is kind of in their vein of their very first you know, starting out making short documentaries is kind of what they were hearkening back to with this. Sort of. I mean, it, I, you know, it's uh, yeah, it's a do- it's a documentary about pimps. Um, mm-hmm. I watched it. It was not for me, uh, though. I don't think it was made for me. Um, That's but uh, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a documentary about pimps, and it covers uh, you know they interview a bunch of prominent pimps in different cities throughout the U.S. and it sort of gives uh, you know a little snapshot into the lifestyle and that sort of thing. Uh, and then in the third act, it starts to begin to, you know, they, they start to cover a little bit more when it comes, like, because they interview prostitutes as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the third act, it starts to cover more of the, the darker side of, of, of pimping. Um, but, uh, Sounds like it could be interesting. Yeah, I don't I mean, know. Like, yeah, it, was, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't my thing, but, uh, you know, it's, it, I get where after making two uh, strong, relatively successful uh, narrative films, yeah. to kind of go back to your roots and do something more documentary-based, it's a, 
Yeah, I don't, it, did, it, didn't, it didn't make a lot of money. It wasn't necessarily the most successful, which I think is part of the reason their career goes in the next direction. But it is a notable uh, checkmark on their uh, uh, careers for sure. Let's talk about that next one, because this is a movie that I loved. Yeah, I, I admit I haven't seen it in a really long time, so... It's I, I totally fine. It's, just... it's not a great movie, but I do find it to be, like, a rewatchable fun movie. Um, so in 2001, they made From Hell, which is... I, I don't know if it's them, like, stepping up to the big leagues as much as, like, maybe they just jumped on the opportunity for a big paycheck. I don't know what it was. What was it? I mean, it was a... You know, it's a major career boost to do. Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, you know, when you're talking where you got Lorenz Tate as your lead for your previous two movies, now you get Johnny fucking Depp. Like, yeah, I think I'd jump at that opportunity no matter what. And Johnny Depp was like a later choice. They were looking at, like, even bigger people. Because 2001 Johnny Depp is still, like... Johnny Depp finding his way. Johnny Depp was still a pretty big deal in 2001, though. Like, it was pre. It was, it was pre Pirates. It was pre Pirates. Actually, yeah. I mean, it was the, I guess the same year as Pirates, but like Johnny Depp still got a lot of work in the in the 90s. Like, yeah. Let's, anyway, let's not pretend like like Pirates are the first fucking thing he did. <laughs> so From Hell is based on the Alan Moore graphic novel. Um, it popularizes the royal conspiracy of the Jack the Ripper murders. Um, which I will not divulge because I fucking love this stuff and no one else is going to give a shit. But basically all you need to know is that it's a very famous graphic novel that basically says the Jack the Ripper murders were made by the elite upper class British noble society. Um, it is completely fabricated and false and totally untrue. But like it's a very famous graphic novel by the same guy who did watch. Um, so uh, the movie is slightly different though. The movie is told from Aberlene's perspective. Aberlene was the lead investigator played by Johnny Depp, um, where the graphic novel is told from the killer's perspective. Uh, you also got Heather Graham playing the infamous Mary Kelly, the fifth victim of Jack the Ripper and the end of the canonical victims. Um, you've got Robbie Coltrane, second Robbie Coltrane movie. He's crossing over miniseries here, um, but he plays like the second in command. Um, <laughs> he said miniseries, and Siri started talking. The government's watching us. Oh, God. I don't want to learn any more about Robbie Coltrane. Um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, and Ian Holm is also in there. Because um, of course he is. Yeah, but it's a fun little period mystery that's, like, if you like Sherlock Holmes movies, it's got a lot of the Masonic lore tied into it and the symbolism and uh, mysticism around it. It's incredibly easy to guess like what the plot's going to be and who the killer is. From Hell falls into Ebert's rule of like the not enough main characters, prominent characters. One of them's got to be the bad guy. Yeah, yeah. It's very clear. Ian Holm is Jack the Ripper. Like there's no one else in this movie. In this movie. <laughs> Great. Um, but yeah, it's a fun recreation of uh, Whitechapel. They built like five blocks of Whitechapel to scale and made it historically accurate. So that's kind of fun because I'm a nerd and I like the Jack the Ripper murders reading into it and stuff like that. Um, but this movie kind of fell by the wayside. They add a lot of like psychological mysticism in the sense that Aberween is uh, addicted to absinthe and he's apparently some kind of a seer. He gets He's a detective who has visions. Like the, it's, the premise is a bad CBS episodic but in this you've got Johnny Depp doing it around the famous murder case so like it kind of gets a little in the weeds with that kind of stuff uh, but all of it's untrue and Jeff Depp is giving this 
rather normal performance. Which, That's something he did a lot in the 90s, though. He did a lot in the 90s. I mean, this is 2001, right? Yeah. But, yeah, I mean... It, Looking back on it, it's, like, kind of cool to see, but also, at that time... I think that was one of the things that hurt it because when Depp went normal, generally his movies didn't do well. And then when he's doing Edward Scissorhands or something like that, he generally gets a little bit more popular. People wanted the weird character actor to be a weird character actor. And in this, he's just kind of like, he could have been played by anyone. Yeah, I don't know, but like this is around the same time as Blow. People like Blow. Granted, that's a crime movie. People, it's a long crime movie. People like those. Yeah. But like, but yeah, it's I'm with you there. I don't know. For me, at least when it comes to this movie, uh, I like I don't have a a ton of the, like I just remember I saw this you know years ago back when I was in college. I didn't rewatch really it for this. Sorry, but uh, I remember watching it and yeah, like the kind of I thought the plot was a little bit meandering. Uh, you know, it, it is. It reminds me a lot of. Uh, Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow in the sense that like there's a tone from a tonal standpoint Johnny Depp is a lead and it just being uh, kind of a slow driving murder plot and you know, like murder mystery you know, like, I guess I, I mean obviously I guess uh, you know Sleepy Hollow is not really a fucking mystery but, but you get the idea um, but, but it's got paranormal elements to it yeah. it's got grisly murders um, it's, there's a little I hammer know, it's similar horror. time period not necessarily place but yeah uh, it's got that hammer horror aesthetic yeah. to it. This one much lighter than Sleepy Hollow, which is trying to be a hammer horror movie. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's all that stuff. So if you it's, like that kind of stuff, I think it's a movie to check out. Well, for sure. No, I mean, it's definitely worth a watch if you haven't seen it and you're into, uh, you know... True kinda, crime? Yeah. Yeah. Any, like, if you're a Jack... Like, well, if you're a Jack Ripper nerd, you've probably fucking seen it. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I think it, yeah, it, it has its audience within true crime. It is kind of... A movie that's kind of, uh, kind of been forgotten, and it's a. I think part of the it, problem is the royal conspiracy is just something that's been written about over and over again by people who are really into this. So basing your entire movie about it, it's like something the Umbrella that Man is, with the Kennedy assassination. Like it's like. But if the Umbrella Man was like widely known to be false, and the Umbrella Man was the number one it, JFK theory, it is. I, I don't know if it's the number. You're one. looking at me like you're just. It's no, 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 no. It's like I, I don't know if it's the number one fucking <laughs> JFK theory, but I know. I like I know that it's it's definitely. Well, pretty, pretty proven to be fucking false. And uh, it's one that gets spread a lot. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, then, yeah, I, it's then, like putting the Umbrella Man as your main plot. Um, yeah, also, Heather Graham is uh, miscast. Uh, I'll leave it she, at that. She often was in that time period. Yeah, big surprise. It's, yeah, honestly, Heather Graham's a talented actress in the right role, but yeah. But from like Mary Kelly was not it. From the late '90s through the mid 2000s, everyone was just like, "Let's put Heather Graham in as female, as any female at all. She'll fit, and she doesn't. <laughs> she has her niche. It's it's not a period piece. <laughs> it's yeah. not. It's not. Uh, and this is just a hodgepodge of Victorian tropes and stuff. I, it, she, honestly, kind of everyone's a little out of place besides Ian Holm. If we're being honest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a... Th- Which is why he's Jack the Ripper. <laughs> yeah. It's a three for me. I, you know, I have a fond memory of it. I think it's kind of fun, but it's also disposable. Yeah. Um, so next up is a solo joint. Yeah. Oh, I'm sh- I'm going to talk shockingly less, like, shockingly less throughout the rest of this. So. Uh, okay. To start plowing. Yeah, let's I'll, go through I'll throw, it. I'll throw in commentary. Well, here, um, <laughs> so next up is New York, I Love You, which is a movie I had seen probably close to when it came out. Did you ever watch Paris Jutemu? I have not. Is that, what, is that how you say it? Jetem. Jetem. Yes. Paris Jetem. 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 Yeah. Um, PJT. Anyway, Alan Hughes 
not both Hughes brothers. Alan Hughes directed this by himself. Um, one of the segments in this movie, it's the Bradley Cooper one. Uh, basically, it's two people going on a date after a one-night stand. The majority of it is done in voiceover. Um, I honestly don't remember if any of the other ones were like that. I only watched the Alan Hughes one. But yeah, this script is pretty bad. The pacing and the editing are good. Um, but it's like this weird amalgam of mumblecore and like, I hate to evoke this again, but like Tony Scott shooting a sex scene. It's the two of those jump cutting quickly between each other with Bradley Cooper voiceover. What I know of Alan and my theory about the Hughes brothers, this feels to me like this was a DP who got a lot of freedom. It's not, it's not great. I don't know. It's a fucking short film in the anthology. Yeah. Next. Sure. 2010, Book of Eli. I have seen this one, sort of. Um, so this is the last film that was directed by the two brothers together. That is the only notable thing about it for me. Well, this is one of those, like, sort of weird culty ones. Yeah, it's got its own following. It's got a following. I don't... I'll be honest, I don't get it. Uh, uh, we had a friend in, when we were living in Chicago named Luke who loved this movie. Uh, Shout out to Luke. Yeah, love you, Luke. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't get I don't get it. You know, it's a post-apocalyptic movie starring Denzel. He's walking around a lot. There's rape in it. I don't, like... I. Like, it's one of those movies that I don't remember a ton about, and I didn't rewatch for this podcast, because I remember just being like, uh. um, um, I guess, it, like, it's an interest, in the post-apocalyptic genre, which is full of crap, I would say yeah. this is an interesting entry only because of its big twist. Um, I'm gonna give this away, so if you would like to watch Book of Eli, which I'm not gonna totally recommend, I don't know if you are either, I'd say skip ahead, like, a minute. The whole thing is that he's blind and you don't know that until really late in the movie and that's kind of interesting and I'll like go back and try and see if it all holds up but the movie's not interesting enough to make me actually want to go back and see if it all holds up. Yeah. Um, but the whole premise is the fact that he is carrying the Bible. In this post-apocalyptic future there is no religion and the man that has the Bible hypothetically has the greatest device of crowd control in the history of the world. Yeah. And that's an interesting premise for a movie, um, but this one's really bleak, and there's a couple fun fight scenes. It's a dirty-looking movie. It's just it's visually very gray. It's very gray. uninteresting. Very great film. Um, I, I said it basically vacillates between like a Cormac McCarthy novel and a George Miller script. Yeah. Like, kind of back and forth, and it can't ever settle. Yeah, and it's, you know, it, yeah, I, I'll wait till I get to my full summation of the, the Hughes Brothers at the end to really get into it, but it's interesting to see how far they've come. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when it comes to this, because I, I think it is directed competently. My issue is predominantly with the script. And that I guess this is a good time because this is their last movie. Let's talk about this. I think as filmmakers, their biggest problem has always been the story that they are given. With both From Hell and this, I think it's yeah. really bold, and I love a director that like reaches and tries something new and goes out of their comfort zone and wades in a different genre. I think those movies are always interesting to see, even if they are unsuccessful. The problem across all of their movies for me is if the script is solid, I think generally the movie is great. If not, I don't think they can overcome a bad script. Yeah, and I think that's really the issue that they ran into because when you're looking at, you know, their early works where you've got the two, the two movies that, you know, at the very least 
are big conversational pieces with some really interesting stuff going on. And they're, I, I stand by, they're both good movies, Menace Society and Dead Presidents. And those are movies that, while they didn't write those movies, I imagine they had a lot to do with the creation of yeah. them uh, from the ground up. And you know, and then you switch it over to like where you've got um, they can't be a gun for hire, right? And when you get from Hell and the Book of Eli, are both the big like kind of studio budget major act uh, major uh, actor movies that they directed, did not write, and you can tell, and yeah. you can tell that they're while you know these are. Kid, you know, there were they were whiz kids in the in the early to mid '90s when they were making these movies, and then they can direct a competent movie. Yeah. But yeah, ultimately they're held back because they just they, they don't have scripts that are that good. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah, that's where I stand by with you know even I know you like from Hell, but from Hell and this are both movies that like I feel like if they were connected to it a little bit more, they could in theory be classics but yeah. there's just yeah I mean probably I mean I like, they really probably need better scripts better scripts and but uh, like dare say better material but they're good but they were like they're well directed movies both yes of them. absolutely um so now from here on out they're separate um so I watched uh Broken City in 2013 they, they also each have one movie after the book of Eli in 2010 so they each have one movie over the yeah. past decade I do know that they've like dabbled in producing and doing some no, stuff sure, like yeah. that. Um, but when we're talking about behind the camera in directing, the director's chair. Directing narrative film. Um, so Alan Hughes, the one who worked with the actors more, in 2013 took on Broken City. It is a Mark Wahlberg-Russell Crowe joint uh, where Mark Wahlberg plays an ex-cop uh, who's friends with Russell Crowe, who's a dirty, dirty mayor. So yeah, that sounds... Yeah, sounds it, it is a... Uh, atrocious script uh it's trying to do political corruptness for dummies but it can't work that out like it, it should be very simple and this movie could work with a very simple script and it fucks it up so let's talk about just a couple nitpicks in there uh russell crowe's accent is fantastic it's kennedy dumb boston aussie new york because I'm, I'm fairly confident this movie is set in New York. And I don't think he totally hits it but once in the movie. And it keeps changing. And this is, this is who's accent? Russell Crowe. It's Crowe. This isn't... Russell Crowe. This isn't Marky. No, no. Mark, Mark can do a Boston if he has to. Well, yeah. He could do a New York if he has to. Yeah, but the problem is, like, Russell Crowe's doing, like, a Kennedy Aussie accent for the mayor of New York. So, so it's, it's like a Mayor Quimby from The Simpsons accent. Yeah. Where it's, it's like, is that the whole thing with that accent is it's supposed to be a bad candidate. Like, that's the joke. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's what that, that's what Crow brought to this production. Yes. Um, <laughs> like, he, he's kind of having fun, but it's just not good. Um, and then as far as, like, a baffling, terrible script, Mark Wahlberg is one of the most likable actors ever. And this movie is actively going out of its way to make him the most unlikable person. At the beginning of the movie, he shoots a kid... He's banging the younger sister of one of the murder victims that he investigated as a cop. Uh, he turns into a private eye who just beats the crap out of his marks. He's an alcoholic. There's this weird scene that's supposed to be charming where it shows him that he's behind on his debts. And he's like, uh, oh, it's better to have uh, more... If you have money on the street, you got money in your pocket, is his motto. And his uh, accountant is like, you're $48,000 in debt on the street. And he's like, give me the phone. I'll start calling. And then there's a montage of him trying to collect debts over the phone. 
What? No. <laughs> Let's see. He then gets in a fight with his actress girlfriend over a sex scene in a movie. You know, that old chestnut. Yeah. Why are you doing fucking... The, yeah, I, I watched The Sopranos season uh, five. I, I watched Friends? <laughs> Jesus. Uh, let's see. Then he uh, drunkenly balls with strangers in the street. Entourage? Uh, and he basically helps political corruption at every turn. Uh, and at the end of the movie, you're supposed to, you know, feel something for him. I don't. You've built up so much animosity and not goodwill. I don't know why I'm supposed to like this person. Is it a broken city at the end of the movie? Yeah. Because it's corrupt. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But so the whole end of the movie is, uh, I call it Chekhov's video recording. At the beginning, when he shoots the kid, very early in the movie when he shoots a kid, you hear them talking about, we have to let him go. He can't be a cop anymore. We've got a videotape of it. And then they bring him in and they're like, I'm sorry, you're a hero. We know that this guy was a bad guy and you did the right thing, but you can't be a cop anymore. And then the videotape comes back at the end as, like, blackmail from Russell Crowe hanging over Mark Wahlberg's head. And Mark Wahlberg's like, eh, they're going to put me in jail for it, but, like, I'm going to take you down with me. Put me in jail. Release the videotape. And it's supposed to be this big reveal, and it's like, you guys set this up in the first ten minutes. I didn't forget. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. yeah this movie sucks. I would not watch it. Um, I, I actively won't. I, I won't. disliked it. Um, you sold me. I won't. And then Albert Hughes, on the other hand, directed a movie called Alpha, which came out in 2018, even though I think it was supposed to come out in 2016. Uh, God. Basically, this is a story about prehistoric man bonding with wolves, and it's supposed to be kind of an interesting little parable for the man and man's best friend relationship told through caveman and wild wolf. And they are both injured in the wild and have to bond together to get back home. Um, after watching Broken City, I liked this movie a lot more. But yeah, yeah, I, mean, I, I believe I was texting you saying, like, this is schmaltzy crap and I hate it. And it's full of that. You see the origin of Fetch. You see the origin of, like, them hunting together. You see them cuddling for warmth. You see the first ever dog bowl. That was, like, a thing that they needed to include in this movie. Uh, it's like things like that where I understand where this movie made its budget budget back because like there's an audience for this. I fucking love dogs, but this was just a little too schmaltzy and not enough substance. Um, the climax of this survival tale is a saber toothed tiger, which sounds really cool, but it's three minutes of screen time. If that saber toothed tigers are generally cinematic cancer. Really? No, well, ten thousand BC, built on the built on the saber toothed tiger. Yeah. Um, but really it ends up being just a movie about a, a guy and a dog walking through the snow. And it's PG-13, and more baffling is it is in a made-up language. The entire movie is in, it's supposed to be like caveman talk, but it's literally just a made-up language, so it's gobbledygook. <laughs> that's something you should have opened with. No, 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 honest. that was a good clincher. <laughs> that's like, that's like the, what, what, what a twist. What a twist. By the way, this like movie that you might be into because it's man and dog, yeah, it's all not in a real language. Fliflina. Fliflina. That's it's what like the, the movie is. It's like The Sims. Um, the Sims impression. <laughs> but yeah, um, that was their last thing. Both of them have projects that they're working on right now. Notably, Albert Hughes, uh, the more technical of them, is directing and producing a TV show on Showtime about... it's Ethan Hawke is playing abolitionist John Brown, um, and it's about... Uh, it's based on a book called The Good Lord Bird 
And basically, it's about a young African American boy who travels around with the abolitionist. Okay, so I like, do that. Eh, it's kind of interesting. Um, that and, sounds like it's going a little bit backward of the roots a little bit too. I mean, you know, yeah, don't, and don't the... as a Showtime series, I like him trying to be a showrunner. Yeah. I think there's some stuff that they could do there. Um, and then Alan Hughes, who is the more actors director of the two, is directing and producing a five episode docu series for FX about Tupac Shakur and his mother. Tupac Shakur. Did I say it again? Yeah. God damn it. I'm, I'm, it's, uh, yeah. Don't edit it out. It's good. It shows human, it's human, human. Human. Um, Tupac Shakur. But yeah. Tupac Shakur. So I think there's like, there might be some good things on the horizon for them, but we did wade through the weeds. I'm glad Dead Presence was really kind of the only hidden gem I found while doing this, and we kind of stumbled and on that I mean, Dead Presence has its cult following, too. Yeah. I mean, it's a, but that was the one that I... Yeah, um, no, I would say Dead Presidents is my favorite. Um, I would say, you know, if, uh, yeah, I, I, like, as far as their career goes, I think it's, a, they came out of the gate super hot and they've never quite lived up to the, the first two movies, in my opinion. Uh, I'd agree. At, at the same time, like, I think that they, you know, they're all, they're, I mean, they're still pretty young filmmakers. They could easily go back to their roots. They're, like, they're the kind of filmmakers I could see you know, going back to their roots and making a movie and it gets, a, you know, it wins fucking best picture in five years. Like, they, they have an immense talent when it comes to overall filmmaking and storytelling. They just need to find the right story to tell. I, I also wish they would work together again. I agree as Because well. Broken City, aside from Russell Crowe's accent and the horrid script that's working against the characters, like... It's a competent film if you take away that terrible accent and, like, you know, Russell Crowe's going to do whatever the fuck Russell Crowe wants. And while Alpha, on the other hand, is kind of like an IMAX movie, like, it's a movie that should be shown, like, on an IMAX screen in a museum with the way that it looks and the way that he's doing these giant Lord of the Rings sweeping shots and things like that. So I do think together they make a really just full toolbox director. Separately, they haven't proven it to me that they can stand on their yeah. own. Well, they haven't done a lot separately. They know, haven't so either. Yes, yeah. it's, it's tough to tell. Really, it's a, you know it, it, we we really stretch this out because it's you know they they don't they don't have the most robust filmography in the world like some of the other people that we've talked about. Which is fine for us because we don't have to watch as many movies. Damn right, love it. Uh, but yeah, but this was still interesting. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm happy I've gone down the rabbit hole and now I can say that. Yeah, I'm a fan of the Hughes brothers. I uh, yeah, I wish wish them the best. I'd love to see. The next stuff they, they do. do. Yeah. Um, just real quick, ending bow on it. Uh, favorite one by them, another movie you should check out that we watched in this. My personal favorite is Dead Presidents. If there was a movie that I feel like you should check out, I would say Menace to Society, which is the one you've already probably seen. Yeah. Uh, uh, if I can't say Dead Presidents, which you should also check out. But yeah, I'd say watch the first two for sure. Uh, I'm in the same boat with else. you. I don't have anything else. I mean, like, nothing, there's nothing else in their filmography that I think is a must see. Um, I agree. And, uh, you know, uh, while there are definitely going to be niche audiences to the stuff they've done later, I think the, the first two movies are far superior. So I'm with you. Cool. Um, should we let people know what we're doing next? No. All right. We don't know when this is coming up. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> Deal with it. Peace out. <laughs>